Let's talk about going on retreat, specifically a self-led solo retreat. I feel that it's so important to take the time to be alone with your thoughts, to pay attention, to set aside time and space away from daily chores, demands, and deadlines. But a retreat isn't going to take itself. It might take some work on your part to put one together. But it's incredibly rewarding, and a solo retreat will enable you to get an unfiltered spiritual experience and teach you things about yourself that you couldn't learn any other way. It can be as luxurious or as cheap as you want. It can take a day or a week or longer. Today on Mind, Body, and Beyond, I'm talking to Ricky Deriz, a meditation teacher and the creator of MindThatEgo.com. He's also the author of Mindsets for Mindfulness, Awaking from Crisis to Higher Consciousness. Ricky has been on multiple solo retreats, and he's got a lot to teach us about how to make your retreat a meaningful one. When I read your piece on the solo retreat, I I was just really um, impressed by how many, you know, how thoughtful you were and all the, the steps you had gone through and how meaningful it was to you. Can you... Tell folks about why uh, they might want to go on a solo retreat. What kind of benefits would they get? The first thing that comes to mind is um, I wrote an article recently uh, about self-awareness. And in researching that was reminded that at the Temple of Apollo in ancient Egypt, there was the, the Greek maxim saying, know thyself, inscribed above uh, the entrance to the Apollo. And it it really is it's almost, uh, it doesn't really make so much sense from a conventional view. Like how can we be alive and be conscious without ruining ourselves? And I think in the West, we we tend to overlook the value of self-awareness and the value of self-knowledge. And a lot of the time without kind of actually making a conscious effort to get to know ourselves, we can be disconnected from ourselves and never really go too far below the surface of of the day-to-day. Um, so I think really looking at the, the benefits of self-knowledge and self-understanding and the myriad of, of uh, life-enhancing ways that that reaches out. And the, the big misconception, which I think is really important to, to open with, is that a lot of people see self-work or inner work as, as somehow selfish. And the opposite is true. Um, when you look at Abraham Maslow, for example, is, is very well known for his hierarchy of needs. And at the top of that is, is self-actualization. But in the late um, era of, of his work, he worked on self-transcendence. So it's this discovery that's less well known that the more you get to know yourself, the more you connect with yourself, the more you build a kind of empathy and understanding that, that then transmutes and and. Um, affects how you relate with other people as well. So it's actually one of the best things that you can do for other people as well as yourself is to go on this journey of of self-discovery. You know, I come from a belief called Advaita Vedanta, where we think that yourself that with a capital S is Atman, which is this divine spark of Brahman, which is the, you know, the overarching infinite power. And so that's how I perceive self with a capital S, but Mm -hmm. does everybody, is that the direction um, everybody should go in? I mean, to me, that's very rewarding and very deep. 
I think the word self puts people off. They don't understand Mm -hmm. maybe how much depth and profundity lies within that. Right. It does. Yes. And and this is this distinction between self with a a lowercase s and the the self with a capital S is is crucial as well, especially when you look at, you know, in the US and and in the UK and in a lot of in most of the modern world. In a capitalist society, we can promote individualism and, and a way that self-indulgence develops, but not from a, a connected, um, heartfelt place, but from one of, of more ego. It's interesting that you mentioned Vedanta. I'm also trained um, in meditation and, and uh, trying to integrate the yamas into my life as well, um, which I agree is, is hugely beneficial in terms of whether it's for everyone, I would say not necessarily. And it's almost as if when you look at the, the non-dual teachings, such as Advaita Vedanta, mm-hmm. or even Buddhism or, or other branches of Hinduism, they, they really explore like the, the core, the source uh, of Atman and Brahman as consciousness, right? But we also, the, the irony is there's so much, even on that journey, there's so much scope for spiritual bypassing and, and the opportunity to look past all of the, the richness and complexity of our psychology. So the, the path that I've been on, coming from a background of, of depression and anxiety and even psychosis, I've really had to get to learn my kind of um, ailments and the things that were holding me back and really had to befriend and understand every step of that journey along the way. So it's been a process for me of understanding my unconscious um, understanding like limiting beliefs, cognitive distortions, and really integrating as many different areas as possible. So I think for a lot of people, even if it's a, a very basic uh, mindfulness practice of just paying a bit more attention to what thoughts are going on in any given moment, that is a great starting point. And if for some it goes in a more secular um, Western approach, that's great. If others are then that spark, like for a lot of people, the spark of the, the seeker impulse is then ignited. That's, that's also awesome. So I feel there's a, there's space for both. Yeah. Yeah. And, or for none, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about expectations that one might have going into a solo retreat. And, um, it, it, you know, if somebody was listening to this for the first time and it had never done it, they might think, oh boy, I'd better have a mind blowing epiphany or it's not worth my time. And mm-hmm. I don't want people to think that. Uh, can you mm-hmm. talk more about setting expectations? Yes, yeah, a great question. The I think it's, it's looking at what underpins, like what principles are you going in to to a solo retreat with, and not only that, what principles are you going into to a journey of self discovery? Mm-hmm. In in my experience, and and what I hear through a lot of people is that. If you're on a path of self-development, and there are so many self-hyphen adjectives that that we can use, but if you go on a path of self-development, that can actually increase uh, the risk of of perfectionism or or even stress Mm. or a sense of like having to attain something. Um, So I find that having like a foundation in self-compassion, another self, but self-compassion, and really this, this mindful approach of, trying trying to be as equanimous as possible and not to get caught up in in craving and desire for a certain outcome and also not to resist other outcomes as well and if you can find that 
and be gentle with yourself in the process, the, the paradox is you're probably more likely to have a, an insight if you're not trying to force anything to occur. So I, I find that balance is, is key with that kind of stuff. Ah, good point. Really good. You said that your very first retreat was a 10-day silent Vipassana retreat. Isn't that a little too ambitious for a first-timer? <laughs> well, the, the important caveat is that before I went into that, I'd been meditating for six or seven years. So I, I knew of Vipassana. And the interesting build-up was that in my life, I was integrating more and more time in introspection going into that as a process really like I, I pondered over it for a while and it, it just got to a stage I, I was afraid of it for a long time I think almost sometimes you know ignorance is bliss but having having um, knowledge and insight already at what can um, surface and how challenging it, it can be to hold a meditation practice that almost made me more afraid of going in like the deep end with Vipassana but at one point um, it was just over two years ago now. I just had a, a shift and, and there was a, a part of me that just said, yeah, this is time. And, and it was absolutely the right time. And the interesting thing is, again, going back to this idea of principles and, and foundation, I already had a lot in place that I'd, I'd picked up that I could apply to, to the, the retreat. So I went in with a, a strong intention. This was about my spiritual practice. It was about... A, a spiritual form of retreat of skilled solitude and I went in very much looking to I'd say enhance my practice understanding what has been mentioned about the kind of paradox of not expecting anything so I feel that I, I, I'm really happy I did it that way I'm really happy that I had a, a, a process leading up to it um, I know I was actually really surprised when I, I did go and I found I was one of the few who already had a a practice apart from those who had already done a previous retreat um, and also seemed to be in the minority with my kind of spiritual connection as well a lot of people were a lot more western-minded and go in because the person has become part of the zeitgeist almost and a yeah. lot of like ceos and yeah. tech whizzes do it for, for concentration and so I, I would say really like it's not something to be taken lightly 10 day you know 10 days in silence with a very disciplined schedule, it is the deep end. And, and it really depends on your predisposition, but also asking yourself, like, what, why are you doing it? Like, what is the, what is the motivation? If it is just to, to get away from the day to day, go book a holiday yeah. somewhere sunny and sit at the beach rather than a, a Vipassana, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would say that if, again, it's one of those things with intuition, if, if someone's, considering it and just has the pull and it feels right you are instructed from the beginning clearly and it is a very it's, it's beautifully done I went to the countryside in, in Germany and it was such a, a profound experience and I was really impressed by the structure of it um, but as I say I, I knew other people that went and their experiences were were wildly different from mine because they didn't have the, the kind of foundation going into it and I and in talking to them after a lot of the challenges they faced, had they had a few tweaks, they, they would have found the experience quite vastly different. So I would say go into it with caution. Do people have to spend a lot of money to go on a retreat? 
I mean, I mentioned that because you, I look at Instagram and I see all these beautiful people in, uh, you know, exotic places and wonder, can't I just do it close to home? Yeah, exactly. It's this kind of, um, the, the lux- luxurious side of self-care and, and this stuff is, is, is also an interesting phenomenon. I would say I would actually encourage people to do the opposite. I would encourage people to go for the the most simple approach that the most inexpensive, like when I, I, I did my first kind of deliberate and conscious retreat away from where I live. And this was in a, a hut and it, like a term hut really describes it. It was very small. It was very modest. Um, but it really, I feel like it evokes this archetype of like Henry David Thoreau, you know, it, it was, it was very stripped back um and and the, the the reason with that and part of the reason i wanted to to go down that route was so that the the inner work itself was the the, the primary focus and it, it's the balance and it, this also links to vipassana and the kind of practice of vipassana it's not like you want to take a military approach to it or be militant or, or really strict but you also don't want to be relax you know going through relaxation so it's finding that in between and yeah. at least for me having a very modest um environment encouraged that kind of focus was having the the bare necessities that i needed but it, it wasn't a distraction i didn't feel the need to do kind of uh, pamper or indulge in, in other ways so i found that helped and it was very cheap it was very cheap mm. do you think it's important to be conscious of your food and maybe you know eat a certain way when you're on retreat that's a good question. It's, it's a, a really good thing to consider. I think it depends. Like on, on Vipassana, you have a, a strict eating schedule. So when you go there, you, you're you up at what well, times the, the bell is at 4 a.m. You're up, you get ready, you go in for your morning meditation, breakfast around 6.30, lunch around 11. And then for first year students, the, in the evening, you just get juice and fruit. Second year students don't get any evening meal. The reason behind that is because with meditation, and as you know, with Vedanta and a lot of these practices, what you you nourish the body with can really affect your focus and, and the, the practice itself. I think it depends on, on what the intention is. If you have already established a, a practice of fasting, like intermittent fasting, for example, that's something that can absolutely be brought into it. Um, when I went, I, I just... I had a suitcase and I prepared meals. I, di- I didn't want to have to think. Like it was almost like anything that I didn't have to think about was a bonus. So I prepared meals, pre-cooked, um, oh. had enough snacks for that time. And, and then it's interesting, my brain didn't have to worry about that stuff. So I would say in, in terms of preparation, going into it so you, you don't have to spend too much cognitive load thinking, what am I going to eat? What time am I going to eat? And again, like keep it basic if the focus really is on that, that inner work. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I went on a writing retreat by myself in the Santa Cruz mountains and I found myself thinking of food all the time, which I mentioned because I think any issue that you already have may become amplified when you're by yourself with hours ahead of you. We were talking about what kind of food to bring. What other kind of things should a person bring to a retreat? Not a list, but it's it's interesting you mention going on a, a writing retreat because we, we say we're using Vipassana as an example. 
you're not allowed to to read or write at all and that was a struggle for me like when I that was one of the things that I looked at and I was like 10 days and I can't journal like what if I have the most profound insight I've ever had yeah yeah <laughs> right like this it was such a good practice such good practice why did did it teach you to have faith in your own you know capacity to remember or what yes yes and this as as a, a writer I'm sure you, you empathize with this this kind of creative ideation process and a lot of the time like for me my my spiritual awakening coincided with a huge outpouring of creativity and that was something I wasn't used to to the degree that I experienced it wow and and this like this was still I was in the middle of that and like this is I'm talking I'm on holiday with friends taking my laptop like I've got to write this I've got to read this like I could not I could not get away so as you say this this process was great to surrender to if something is important it will resurface and also I've been reminded by my meditation teacher all thoughts are thoughts and even these creative insights and these kind of creative ideas they're still just thoughts so if you apply mindfulness to it the way that I was going through through that route was a form of attachment to creative ideas oh so this, this was something I noticed that, and, and just to kind of show how this has a, an effect, because it doesn't sound like a necessarily a, um, something that will cause suffering, right? If you look at a Buddhist approach of, of non-attachment, same with Advaita Vedanta, it doesn't look like it could lead to suffering. But the more that that kind of neuron network is practiced, and the more that I was attaching to creative thoughts, yeah. the more I was then want, craving them, on some level, but also creating a sense of attachment that didn't discern between thoughts. So then I started becoming more attached to like my planning brain. Mm. And, and one, one insight that I had uh, actually on the Vipassana retreat was the, the phantom planner, what I call the phantom planner, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the very much like autonomous part of the brain that is constantly planning, constantly like, what am I gonna have for lunch? I also did the same, like thinking about what I was gonna eat it became so ludicrous when I got to the stage of my morning meditation, I had like a, a vision of how I was going to slice the banana that I had on my porridge. <laughs> right. Yep. So like you say, this, this, this is a, an internal form of distraction. And a lot of the time we just, you know, are, are kind of collectively we're, we're conditioned to always look outwards. So we see distraction as our phone or, you know, the doorbell going or, or, or something in our external reality but in terms of internal distractions when you enter a retreat or a situation like that the brain then goes here's something to distract you from the practice like you say it can be thinking about food it can be thinking about what you're going to do when you get back from the, tr the retreat yes yes but it is yeah it's, it's a really um interesting mechanism to be aware of yeah for sure yeah um I've gone off track a little bit, but in terms of, of tools, um, this, so with Vipassana, it was a great insight into looking at that mechanism and learning from it. And that was 100% meditation, nothing else. No matter what surfaces, meditation is, is the practice. I, I went through with, with the retreat that I did as a solo retreat. What I decided, and, and in kind of, setting intentions before I realized that I also wanted to have time for self-reflection 
I also wanted to have time to plan because it was around new year the first time I, I did it and I wanted time to, to kind of indulge in in the the joy of, of like the creative practice so I included all of those things in this retreat I've also done purely just meditation retreats in which case there's a lot of letting go of, of ideas and and that kind of thing but I think it depends on, on what you want to do and I would say include that in the intention if you go on a writing retreat how many hours in a day do you want to write? How much do you want to read to be inspired? How much do you want to reflect? Um, and that then gives an, an idea. But if you really, let's say you're going purely for the, for the meditation, I would say don't, don't take anything that will distract you. Or if, if you want to go and you want to read, take one book. You know, take hmm. just enough so that the focus is on the, the intention. So you're kind of, setting the intention and then sticking with that throughout the the time however long that is oh okay i was kind of expecting to hear bring an eye shade bring earplugs bring vitamins <laughs> and a nice yeah. face mask or something is yeah, yeah is there anything else maybe people could think of how to prepare what to pack i mean practically i, I think it really depends i think it really depends on on the on the person and, and like what they're, what they're looking for. Um, of course, nowadays it depends where you, where you book in. If you book an Airbnb, for example, you're going to have a different experience. Maybe if you go camping, that could be, be a good retreat. Mm, yeah. But again, I think just keep in mind that the kind of bare necessities, what do you need? If you take food, take enough that you need, take comfortable clothes, mm -hmm. for example. Um, if you're in a, a, an environment where you're outside then you want to have a, an opportunity to kind of enjoy that but I really think that other than keeping it to the minimum maybe just take one suitcase or one kind of kind of modest size bag other than that I would say just keep keep the distractions to a minimum and maybe an eye mask and earplugs if you're in you know somewhere that it is more demanding but I would also encourage people to go somewhere as, as kind of still and quiet as possible if that's an option. Yeah. Like in, in nature, that's an added bonus. Yeah, I agree. I think nature is really a big important part of that. What do you say to a person who says they're too busy and they have too much going on in their life to, to carve out time for a retreat? It's a common, uh, I want to say complaint or, or excuse. There's the, the, <laughs> the, the two words I, I would use and the reason being, mm -hmm. the first question I, I would ask someone if that is the case is, how much time they've spent on their phone or how much time they spent watching Netflix over the past month, for example. Um, and the reason I say that is that we're so accustomed to kind of tuning out and not prioritizing our time that there's an illusion of not having enough time. I'm under no illusion that, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have a family. I'm, I'm kind of in, in charge of my schedule. I know that people have other demands on their time and it can be more difficult, but really what, what, is worth exploring is the value that you put on this. I wrote an, an article a few years ago about the importance of time valuation rather than time management. And if you really feel like oh, this is something that I need, it's a case of, of looking at everything else you have to say no to. All these quote unquote sacrifices that are required just to carve out that time. And in the schedule, and, and this was something I learned when I, I really 
consciously started setting boundaries. Like I'm a people pleaser by nature and I've had to same, had same. To do a lot of work around this, right? This fuels a sense of obligation a lot of the time and, and to actually do something, whether it's a weekend or even for, for a lot of people, a few hours in the week, that's just for you, that can be really difficult. So the first is to have the self-compassion and know that this is time that you deserve. This is time that you know you will benefit from and, and it's not selfish. So these are some limiting beliefs around that. And then I, 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 the way I describe it is putting something concrete in the calendar. Make it immovable, right? Because it, we, we might have generally in life, if uh, we get a, a work meeting or if there's something, you know, we make plans to go for dinner with friends, we look at that in the calendar, be it Google Calendar or in our kind of mind's eye, and it's robust. And, and we kind of feel like this, I'm going to follow through with this. That's something that a lot of people don't do with something like a solo retreat. It will be something that I'll do at some point in the future. Whereas if you say, actually, no, what I'm going to do this weekend, yeah, I'm going to spend a whole weekend solo retreat and I'm going to look at booking somewhere, etc. If that's too much, begin with a, a, an afternoon in, in the week or over the weekend, just a few hours to begin either journaling or, or doing something of, of uh, a more introverted kind of tendency. But this making concrete in your schedule is, is really important to, to stick to. And it's kind of holding yourself accountable to that. It is. And, you know, now that you mention it, it kind of is part of the whole spiritual process because not mm-hmm. only are you establishing boundaries for your thoughts and your mind and all that, but you are also establishing boundaries with your time and, you know, the other people around you, you know, navigating that with them too. That's completely a part of the process. And it makes me recall, um, I've been sober for many, many years and it, uh, when you're brand new sober in AA, they say, you know, there's nothing in this world more important than a meeting. Nothing. It's set in solid brick. Yeah. And if you start your sobriety mm. in that way, then you're on a good, healthy path because maybe for the first time in your life, you've made something invaluable and, you know, and set in stone just for you. It's It's transforming even just the act of setting aside that time and making it sacred for yourself. Yeah, that's a great example. It's a great example. Uh, and me too, I, I don't drink alcohol now. And I found it the same. And I'd be interested to hear how you, how you find the, the process. Because in the beginning, I find setting any boundary. I'm, I'm much better now because it's more ingrained. But in the beginning, I had no boundaries at all. So when I set them, I, I set them from a place of fear almost. And would be like yeah. overly, but no, I can't do that. And, and feel really tense. You know, like I, I in, in kind of just even expressing delicately, I would feel like I was doing something wrong. Alcohol is uh, such a good example though, because so many people put peer pressure on. Yeah. And it is, if ever there's a test of your, your uh, resilience in sticking mm-hmm. to, to boundaries and sticking to what you know is good for you, giving up alcohol is a huge one. For, for the the amount of peer pressure but have you found that over time it, you've become like more like easier with setting boundaries oh i have i've always had a problem with boundaries but uh no i've been i have to say it's still an ongoing struggle and i've been sober for 37 years now and i'm still create mm. learning to create boundaries so i ain't a teacher i'm a student yeah <laughs> yeah Working process. The same here, though. Like, I honestly, 
I would say it depends on, on the context. I'm getting better in, in a lot of ways, but there are so many times where I just feel the anxiety or like so much of me wants to just not set boundaries in certain ways or, or avoidance is a big thing as well. Like I notice a tendency to yeah, how easy it is to go into avoidance rather than set boundaries. And, and I, every time I catch myself doing that, mm-hmm. I'll be like, no, if I, like a good example is because I, I, I've not got the biggest like social capacity. At one point I would avoid all social contact rather than turn up somewhere and say, I'm leaving at like nine. Cause I just didn't have any faith. <laughs> <laughs> right. I had no yeah. faith that I would stick to it. So instead I just didn't turn up to a lot of things. And now I'm, I've got a better understanding of where those boundaries are. But yeah, I completely relate to the, it's such a difficult practice. And, and fairly uncommon as well. Yeah. Wow. I've learned so much talking to you today. This is really great. Oh, my pleasure. I hope somebody can hear it and feel inspired to go on a solo retreat. Yes. That'd be awesome. Because it, it really is it's setting that time and beginning or enhancing that journey of self-discovery is one of the, the most teaching experiences you can do for sure. I agree. Ricky, thanks so much. And you have a great day. You too. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I spoke to Ricky Deriz, the creator of MindThatEgo.com and the author of Mindsets for Mindfulness, Awaking from Crisis to Higher Consciousness. You can learn more about his work on MindThatEgo.com in the show notes of this podcast episode and on the show page for Mind, Body and Beyond at MindBodyBeyond.co. Be sure and visit the site where you can sign up for email updates. Thanks so much for joining me today. Bye-bye.